0: is an Odyssey Original.
1: This is KX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A number of
0: hospitals now seeking to raise their treatment prices by as much as 15%. They say they've been hit by salary increases for nurses. It comes as local health care workers are on strike at Cedars-Sinai. So are we going to see inflation in health care costs? And how much will premiums go up? We'll go in depth. There are also predictions that long COVID could eventually affect a billion people around the world. So what exactly are the risks? Vladimir Putin blasts what he calls Nazis in Ukraine. We will get more on his
1: so-called Victory Day speech. We'll go to Kiev to talk with a group of filmmakers embedded uh, with Ukrainian forces, assessing the chances of a full-blown recession after another tough day on Wall Street. And uh, first, vinyl, now VHS tapes to be the next uh, forgotten tech to become trendy. We'll talk about that at the end of the show.
0: Do you even have a VHS tape?
1: Um, I have, I think, somewhere stashed away my copy of the 1989 Batman, which I almost wore out as a kid. Right. But I've got it somewhere, I think. But you have
0: nothing to play it I on. I have nothing
1: to play it on. Right. No. So it's useless. Well, I wonder, are these people playing the VHS tapes, or are they just putting them on the shelf because, like, the box is really nice?
0: <laughs> I don't know. That's but what I, I want to know. I haven't had a VHS tape in years. No. So, OK, we'll find out why people want it. Uh, we start, though, with uh, fears of a steep rise in hospital and health care costs. Joining us is Dr. Jack Needleman, professor and chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, health care costs, as it is, they keep going up and up and up. And it looks as if that is going to be a continuing problem. Are you there? All right. Well, Health care costs are so high that we can't even afford the doctor.
1: <laughs> we will... Uh,
0: Just too much.
1: We'll put him on hold and uh, check the phone line out there. Um, but, um, yes, they're, they're tying some of this to to nurses' salaries, and there's some reporting on it today. And, and we talk about that especially because we've done a few stories here on the show, and there have been plenty of stories across the country on, on nursing shortages, and one of the things nurses were asking for is higher pay. Yeah. Um, if you want us to work, because there's only so, so many of us, and you got to pay us more. So.
0: Yeah, but, you know, throughout the years, they always had all kinds of plans for bringing down health care costs. You remember when there was a huge trend for HMOs? that HMOs were supposed to be the be-all and the end-all, and that it was going to really do a lot to bring down health care costs. It really didn't work out that way. And and the big concern now is that as health care costs go up, then, of course, premiums go up for your health insurance policies. Employers hate that because they pay a share of that, so that means they pay more and their employees pay more. and And if you go to get a test or something, it's more out-of-pocket. So it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that as they go up, they continue to go up, and there's no end in sight.
1: I think we have uh, Dr. Jack Needleman back with us now.
0: Oh, doctor, you're there. I am. Sorry about that. No, 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 that's okay. Um, So the the question that we were just talking about was that are we destined to have ever-escalating health care costs? And you may have just heard me say that a few years ago there was this big HMO push – on the theory that that would bring down health care costs. It really didn't work out that way. So is this our destiny?
2: Okay, so we've got two issues with, with the increasing healthcare costs. Yes, we're going to see healthcare costs increasing because the population is aging and uh, aging populations have more illness. Uh, we also see improvements in the technology for treating uh, illness and those uh, technology improvements, new drugs, new treatments, tend to add to costs. Uh, the, uh, uh, we don't see in the, hot, if hospitals, if we keep a patient out of the hospital, the hospital costs also look like they're going up per patient because uh, the healthier patients are out of the hospital and the sicker patients remain. So all those affect our understanding of, of how costs seem to always be going up uh The particular issue that we 've got right now is what 's happening with nursing costs and to some extent other labor costs in the hospital and whether uh those are going to p- push costs up in the in the next few years as well, and if so, by how much.
1: Are we supposed to believe that, that some of these big medical systems are are strapped for cash? Um, it's one of the things that the workers, the service workers at, at Cedars are pointing out as they strike, saying, hey, you made all this money last year. You can afford us. So if they can afford them, so say the workers, shouldn't they be able to afford higher prices or higher pay for the nurses?
2: OK, well, let's first talk about how much higher the the pay is going to be, because the Wall Street Journal article that uh, I think inspired this said 7 to 15 percent increases. Those are sound to me massively in excess of what's going to be needed. Uh, Labor is about half the cost of hospitals and nurses are about half the labor cost in hospitals. So roughly a quarter of the cost of the hospitals are nurses. Absolutely critical personnel. Uh, And uh, you want them to be well-trained and and perform well. But if nurses are asking for 7% increases in a one-year period, 15% over a two or three-year period, which is what I think the numbers are, are looking like, uh, then you're talking about a 2% push on hospital costs in a single year, uh, when hospital costs have been going up three, 3% or so every year, even without the push from labor. There are also some offsetting savings if you uh, pay your staff better. Right now, hospitals are making extensive use of traveling nurses uh, at, and paying roughly twice what they pay for a, 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 an employed nurse to, to cover a traveler. So if you can pay your staff a little bit more, reduce the need to replace them with a traveler because people haven't left, you're going to see some savings there as well.
1: Dr. Jack Nealman, professor and chair of the Department of Health Policy Management at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. One estimate
0: is that long COVID symptoms may be affecting up to 7% of Americans who have already had the virus. Another estimate says that a billion people worldwide could end up with symptoms long after their initial experience. With us now is Dr. Panagis Galietzatos, professor and internist at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, who treats long COVID patients. Doctor, thanks for being with us. You know, I keep hearing people saying nowadays anyway, oh, I had COVID, it wasn't so bad Uh, I was sick for a day, maybe two. All is well now, but maybe not the case.
3: Yeah. So, uh, you know, viruses, especially those that are uh, that infect us, get into our lungs, they they can cause a variety of things. And I try to break it down into two categories. That immediate effect, right? That sickness, that that cold that keeps you home, um, hopefully doesn't land you in the hospital. But then there's also post-viral consequences. Every virus has it. Every virus will ravage the body in subcapacity capacity that will leave a lingering effect for quite some time and that's our job to try to slew through once people survive it do they get back to their baseline immediately
1: so we've heard plenty of times you're still trying to pin down exactly you know where long covid comes from different types of symptoms we see a range but have we been able to at least average out how long long covid is for a lot of people does it eventually kind of sunset or get better
3: Right. So great question. And this is where we continue to struggle. And and I'll go out uh, on K and X and say, I actually, if you come to my clinic, like I had a patient this morning, I actually try to dichotomize it or try to put it into two categories. Right. A lot of viruses will cause consequences that are not new. Right. A lot of those consequences are because of just healing, right? No different than if a bone broke and I put it back together. The symptoms you're gonna feel are from healing. And then some other viruses do just cause some of your old diseases to come back or to get worse. So those to me are post COVID. Long COVID is really a new pathology. And that's where I really talk to patients. It means your symptoms aren't falling into a category of healing or a disease we know. That long COVID, that continues to be explored. And the reason why I stress this so much to you is that I think that's what actually probably handicaps a little bit of us understanding long COVID well. Too many of the other population of patients sometimes cluster throughout, and we're trying to really, really dissect well the specific phenotype for patients with long COVID, which can be very, uh, not life threatening, but life crumbling, right? Impacts lives. Some patients, for instance, just haven't even been back to work for years as they're struggling with their long COVID symptoms.
0: If memory serves me right, I believe, weren't there one or two medical issues that came out of the 1918 flu pandemic that led to, many years later, sort of a cluster or a larger number than would have been expected disease syndrome in some people? At least that's what my memory seems to serve up. And where I'm going with that question is, how do you know in the next year, two, three, four, When somebody walks into a doctor's office complaining of a GI issue or uh, uh, an upper respiratory issue, how do you know that it isn't somehow related to COVID?
3: Yeah, again, a a great question. And and this is where physicians really need to stay sharp with the current evidence that continues to mount for post-infectious complications, and especially with post-COVID resulting in long COVID, especially since it's one of the most contagious infections we've ever seen. So, from my standpoint, when I go out and, and lecture and teach physicians, I make it clear to them you, you got, when you talk to patients about their symptoms, go back a little bit, time travel with them to see if there wasn't a point in time potentially where their balance, their equilibrium was shifted because of an infection, and potentially see if you can begin to draw conclusions. I see this because that's what's led to one of the biggest breakthroughs over the last few years, where we realized something like multiple sclerosis comes from Epstein Barr virus, right? The virus that caused Mono in high school decades later can cause this neurological consequence to you. So from my standpoint, we really, as physicians, need to understand that post-viral consequences are rather dire, and we need to keep an open mind to really fully explore them in order to help patients at their best. Because for a lot of patients with long COVID, I can tell you, the struggle they have when they walk into my clinic is, are you going to tell me this is just all in my head because all your tests come back normal? And I become their advocate and say, no, you're going through an actual pathology, we just don't know about it. We don't know about it. It's not in our textbook. We're learning about it in real time.
1: Dr. Panagis Galliat-Satos, professor, internist, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Russia marking the anniversary of its uh, victory over Nazi Germany with the big parade in Moscow. They do this, uh, plus a major speech, by Vladimir Putin. This was what was being watched um, as we led up to this for, for days and days. Because uh, all the questions were, what is Vladimir Putin going to do to maybe further the war in Ukraine? Or will he declare actual war and not just this limited engagement, this military operation that he's doing? We have Andrew Jenks with um, Cal State Long Beach with us now. Uh, russia experts uh andrew thanks for for coming to the line i guess this is important almost in what putin didn't do and didn't say today rather than what he did
4: yeah i i think that the, what what he's up to here is um playing uh uh the game of the guessing game or right? actually he's having us play the guessing game and that works to his advantage uh meanwhile he's going to continue waging war um and it's in this kind of indeterminate uh situation that we see now in ukraine and, you know, it doesn't, you know, thinking about it, it's actually, if you're Putin, this is a pretty good move because um, it still keeps his options open. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, uh, it really doesn't matter if he declares war because the facts on the ground are he's waging war against Ukraine.
0: Well, and, and I suppose by by not saying anything, as you know, last week there were predictions, I think, out of the Pentagon about is he going to declare a war on on all of ukraine so he can recruit more more troops or you know on the most dire end of predictions was he going to set off some tactical nuclear uh, weapon he didn't do any of that as we've just uh, discussed but does that not also then signal that this is going to be a really protracted experience there
4: yes i think so i mean um, I, I personally, I think that the whole discussion of whether or not he's going to declare war on Victory Day was a little bit overblown, because the, the reality is is that he is waging war. And if we think about, let's say, previous wars that the Soviet Union engaged in, um, in places like Czechoslovakia, the invasion of Hungary, uh, Afghanistan, uh, there were no formal declarations of war, and yet there were massive military operations. So I, I, I don't necessarily see that the declaration of war is terribly Critical here. What's critical is what he's actually doing, and that is continuing to wage war in Ukraine. And I agree, it's going to be protracted.
1: He did mention the fighting for the Donbas region. Is there any read on this that that could be his fallback that he, you know, could could try and keep that area and, and still call it a win? Which is, of course, easy for people thousands of miles away to say, not easy for the Ukrainians.
4: Yeah. Well, I I think that that would be in some ways a kind of optimal situation for him, and and. And, you know, he could have probably negotiated a settlement that would give him at least some more influence in the eastern part of Ukraine long before he escalated. But at this point, I think, as you as you indicated in the question, um, Ukrainians are not going to compromise now. They have a sense that they can fight and and perhaps even win. So that also suggests to me that this is going to be Uh, protracted engagement, and uh, how does Putin get to saying, you know, I have the Donbass when he's got widespread uh, resistance uh, among Ukrainians that, by the way, he counted on their support uh, early on uh, in the invasion.
1: Andrew Jenks, Cal State Long Beach, uh, Russia expert. Andrew, thanks.
0: Two U.S. Army veterans turned filmmakers have been on the front lines in Ukraine, and they join us now from Kiev. They're Justin Roberts, CEO of Echo Bravo Productions, and fellow vet Hank Barb. Also on the line from Ukraine is Steve Shakunda from L.A., who is a Ukrainian American, helping with all the logistics. First, uh, Justin, uh, thank you, thank you, and thank uh, the other two for being with us. And we'll get to everybody before we're done. But, uh, Justin, tell us a little bit about where you guys have been and what you've done thus far.
5: Well, thus far, uh, we we came into, through Lviv, down to Kiev, and uh, we just got back from the Donbass region, and uh, we went out on some of the operations there, met with some of the soldiers who were in the midst of the fight, and went out with them as they done did some of the attacks, and then uh, surveyed the humanitarian efforts over there, and then you know, we actually just came back a couple of days ago, back to Kiev.
1: So you've been pretty embedded with the Ukrainian troops. Tell us what it's like, especially out there as you get further to the east in the Donbass, which is where a lot of this is, is concentrated right now.
5: It's, it's a lot of heavy fire, but it's a lot different fight than, you know, what we're used to. When we were in, I was in Afghanistan, uh, these other two, Hank was in Iraq and Steve was in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, we were used to small arms. We were used to uh, IEDs, and it was just a very different fight. You know, this is a very conventional fight, so it's a lot of long range weapons, uh, artillery, rockets, uh, drones, and trenches. And so the, if you're in the ra- wrong grid coordinates, yeah, then you're gone.
0: And do you think just psychologically, were you guys prepared for this going into this experience since it was, as you just pointed out, so different than what all of you had experienced in your own military backgrounds?
5: Yeah, it's both of us are pretty familiar with this.
6: Yeah, I I think yes and no. You know, once we got embedded with the soldiers, it felt like being around soldiers, you know, uh, uh, a
5: forward observation post a FOB, right, is a FOB, and it, it felt familiar. And, and it, being psychologically familiar with the combat, too, we were pretty well prepared for that. I mean, I brought my buddy Hank here because he's a former combat medic, and so I have a pretty good team here. And Steve, I mean, he's former Marine infantry. So we, we've we been through the firefights before. It's just, you know, it's just different.
1: Hank, was that you we just heard? I remember we talked we talked before, <laughs> at least a, a couple of weeks before you left, you were getting set to go, right?
6: Yes, sir. Yeah, I talked to you, uh, and I think Justin was in a uh, 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 a money meeting trying to raise money for the trip. <laughs> trying to
1: get ready for the trip. So, <laughs> uh, and, and Hank, how would you gauge how things are going, especially for the Russians, which don't seem to be moving those lines all that much, and it's, it's so much of the discussion that the Ukrainians have been able to fight so well and hold them off, or maybe the Russian military just wasn't uh, as good as everybody thought it was all what? this time.
6: I think it's a combination of both. You know, the thing that I noticed and that stood out to me the most is that, man, the, the Ukrainian soldiers, their morale is through the roof. Uh, they're exceptionally competent at what they do. And they are a professional army. And that's what I noticed. And, and also, they are confident that they're going to win. And I'm confident that they're going to win just from seeing them. And uh, I, I think uh, I think they are winning.
0: Uh, I'm curious, is, is Steve uh, there with you now? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Hi. You are. Hi, Steve. Uh, so as I mentioned going into this, uh, you're helping with logistics. What's involved with that?
5: Well, uh, I want to correct that real quick. He, so he's helping on uh, the camera work, uh, interpreting,
7: and, well, what are you not doing?
0: <laughs>
7: <laughs> yeah, I brought up as a, I guess, uh interpreter also a cameraman Uh, i live in uh, hollywood los angeles so i do filming for for living and uh, i was looking uh, to uh, find my way to get to ukraine and help out in here in ukraine so i was able to connect with uh, justin and we talked over the phone and a few days uh, we talk uh, because we both members of vme veterans in media and entertainment that's how we got in touch and uh and yeah in a few days i flew here and we started this this mission of uh, filming a documentary and uh just like hank mentioned before uh it is uh you know sort of a different war it's artillery war but it's still a combat so you know we're just getting used to it and uh learning a lot from the front line. And as Hank mentioned before, it's a little bit of both. Russian army is not as strong as we thought, and Ukrainian is stronger stronger than we, you know, we didn't uh, anticipate that Ukrainian army would be so strong. Nobody did, really.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Everybody
7: expected them to fold, and they just everybody wrong
1: all right the early the early expectations were you know a week or, or two weeks or something and now now we're all this this time in uh, steve you've all seen things in iraq and afghanistan but did you st- have any trepidation of of going back into a, a war zone or was it something that like you were uh, saying earlier no you felt like you had to go almost you wanted to uh, go and you to wanted be, to do something
7: exactly so to be honest i don't want to be here if the war didn't start like i'll be i'll be in hollywood filming and doing my thing but just because of this war i i couldn't just sit in hollywood and watch from the tv and watch the news i was like heartbroken so i had to find my way here and do something from here
0: justin how how justin how long is this mission for you guys how long do you plan to stay there are you done shooting
5: Oh, it feels like you're going to curse the production if I give you a time. <laughs> uh, it's the, uh, it's, it's, we're hoping for three or, three or four more weeks for the documentary, but then we're going to immediately pivot to doing a syndicated series of 10 episodes focusing on the humanitarian efforts uh, that are going on here, so a different nonprofit for each episode with our series that's called Do Good.
6: It focuses on hope. You know, do good is about finding hope in really traumatic situations, because uh, like I mentioned before, whenever something really bad is happening, good people are going to step up and make life better for people around them.
1: Yeah. So it's
5: you, like the documentary focuses on the war and do good focuses on the people who are helping to rebuild.
1: Can, can you share some stories or, or, or pieces of what you've you found while you were documenting those efforts, the people out there doing good that have really stuck with you?
5: I mean, like thus far, like our first sets of efforts have been focused just on the war and getting embedded into the military because so much is going on right now. Uh, we have the first thing that we came across, though, even before we got into Ukraine, was what was happening in Poland, in Warsaw. Uh, we, we tried to find the refugee camps. We didn't find any. It's because the people of Warsaw, you know, two million people took in 500,000 people into their homes. And the government wasn't forcing them, telling them to do it. There was no nonprofits leading the charge on this. This was a movement of the people who just became incredible neighbors and opened up their homes.
6: Yeah, You know, we uh, we stayed at a hotel in Poland while we were waiting to cross into into Ukraine, and the hotel was full of, of refugees. And I remember Justin mentioned, hey, we'd like to buy a meal for the, for the refugees. And the hotel said, oh, no, we've already paid for all of their food. And the, and so even the hotels there were opening up their hearts
5: to these businesses, people. yeah, homes. It's just an incredible movement of kindness that's going on. So I think one of our first heroes that we saw is just simply the country of Poland. Oh, yeah, Poland, yeah.
0: Steve, as as you and and uh, your companions there, your fellow uh, filmmakers have moved around Ukraine. Uh, what has the impact been? On the average civilian there, not not somebody who's taken up arms, not somebody. But but the average person who three months ago was going about their normal daily existence, whether they were a teacher or a doctor or grocery store owner, and now find themselves in the middle of this this war with Russia.
7: Yeah, sure. Good question. We actually interviewed a doctor from Mariupol. So what he told us, it just, you know, it's hard to describe the pictures he shared with us it's hard to watch so from a normal life he was a doctor doing his thing and then when war broke up he just people were the civilians uh, children women were dying in mariupol uh, right and left because of uh, russian bombing so they russians don't discriminate they usually target you know everything and anything So for this person, he was living in Mariupol as a doctor. He had to flee, and he had a really hard time just, you know, uh, moving to Ukrainian side. And right now, you know, he basically lost his home, his job, and his life completely changed. So, yeah, uh, the the life changes uh, completely for a lot of Ukrainians, civilians.
1: Justin or Hank or, or both, take me through, you know, uh, from the eyes of a, a, a soldier who's, who's served now seeing just how indiscriminate the Russians are with that civilian population. I mean, when you're bombing homes and schools and theaters, that's that's not what's, quote unquote, supposed to happen.
6: You know, it, it, it feels like this is not necessarily like a, a battle against political governments, but like good and evil. You know, uh, the Ukrainians would win a victory. And the response would be the the Russians would kill the town that it came from, and and just every building in the town is destroyed. We we spent time with a, with an old older lady, and she was sweeping the rocks in her house and folding clothes. Half of her house was down. All the all the houses around her were like piles of, of stone, and they're out there sweeping the stone and trying to make it just feel normal
0: again. I would uh, imagine, I've never been in a war zone, but I would imagine that being in one, whether it was Iraq or Afghanistan or now for you guys, uh, Ukraine, has got to change you in some fundamental way. Am I right about that?
5: Yeah, it's I, I call it being baptized by fire. You know, once you go through the firefights, you you don't get to come back as you were before. You are going to be different. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily broken or, or weaker or, or something wrong with you. It's just you're going to be different. And uh, so that's why, I mean, like when I decided on what kind of team I wanted to bring with me, you know, I selected these guys specifically. Uh, they have experience telling stories. They're artists. They, they know what they're doing in front of a camera, behind a camera, but they also know how to navigate a battlefield. And, you know, they're not rattled when the bombs go off and they know what to do in emergency situations. So that was the specific kind of team that I needed uh, to be able to tell these stories, for us to tell these
1: stories. Justin and uh, all of you, uh, Hank, uh, Steve, thanks so much for for speaking to us.
6: Appreciate you guys. Thanks for having us on.
1: glad you're uh staying safe and uh and that you'll be telling these stories and and we'll stay in touch with you justin roberts ceo echo bravo productions and uh fellow veteran hank barb and then steve secunda from la Ukrainian american helping out uh, get them to where they need to be uh, translation and uh filmmakers all of them Concerns about the economy leading to uh, more falling on Wall Street today. One-factor latest word of economic problems for China.
0: Joining us now, Beth Ann Bovino, chief U.S. economist at Standard & Poor's. Thanks for coming back with us. So, uh, I'm depressed. I mean, I I swore... (laughs) I wouldn't look at my four hundred and one k. was
1: this Thursday or Friday, I, yeah, and then yeah,
0: I kind of, I looked, I I did, and and uh, so I'm hoping, uh, Beth Ann, that you are going to offer me some remedy that will bring me out of my now deep depression. It's all yours. <laughs> you're talking. You're asking an economist
8: to do something like that. Absolutely. Oh, I'll, try, yeah. I'll
0: Do my best. <laughs> okay, you're on.
8: <laughs> well um, so we' so one thing to take there's a lot there's a big concern about recessions um certainly, I understand the the pain that people are feeling, particularly when they go to the go to the gas pump or to the store with incredibly high inflation, and the Fed moving to attack inflation by raising rates higher, which is certainly going to hurt borrowers uh, in particular. But, uh, and that will slow growth, so that's the downside. The uh, the positive piece of news that I want, to take, want you to take away with is that, first of all, the jobs market is holding up relatively well. We're looking at around 400,000 job gains per month now back to May of last year, pretty nice readings. And job openings are near record highs. People are getting squeezed by inflation, and that's unfortunately a, a big downside. But right now, at this point in time, It looks like the U.S. economy is holding up. If you talk about that first quarter GDP reading, uh, part of that was a lot of that was tied to trade and and inventories. People in the U.S. were buying and so were um, and people and businesses were investing to put that in perspective.
1: Doesn't help when people are looking at the 401k zone, looking at whatever the markets are doing and thinking, well, it's just been weeks and weeks of bad and I'm not feeling great. So is it just the same old advice of don't panic and stay in and it'll get better someday?
8: Well, keep in mind that uh, what is it what there's a famous, uh, famous uh, quote from some uh, econ- famous economist who I believe got the Nobel Prize. So he used to joke that uh, he used to joke that uh, the uh, US stock market uh, was able to successfully predict nine out of the last Three recessions. So yeah. you know, put that in perspective for what it is. But I mean, I'll tell you on the downside. Sorry, sorry, Charles. Um, to, <laughs> oh no, more, more bad news. I'm
0: going to close my ears. Go ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. Talk. Talk to Mike.
8: <laughs> go ahead. On the downside, I mean, the risk of recession has increased. There's, um, you know, that uh, we do now have it at 30% over the next 12 months, largely be, uh, largely, uh, largely more of a 2023 story, and that's because that inflation hit is affecting the economy and and the Fed's cure is pretty aggressive. And that makes and that gives us some pause. Again, 30 percent is not a done deal, but it does it does suggest that, you know, it, there is there is still some concern. Out
1: there. You want to ask her the question about the Fed screwing it up?
0: Oh, the one that we ask everybody, every single. Is, per- <laughs> yes. Be, yeah, yeah. The question is, is <laughs> can, can we count on the Fed screwing this one up because they seem to always do that?
8: Well, I, I mean, I think that, well, well let's put it this way. Um, last year, they, uh, they were way behind the curve. Everybody knows that. They recognize that. Uh, historically, if you go back many years, that, uh, that sort of stands out as a kind of an outlier. I think they hopefully and I get I get it that, you know, there there is a question of credibility that, that the Fed is facing now uh, because of that mistake last year. In fact, the inflation that they're fighting now is largely to do in part to do with what they did last year. So uh, so I get it. That means that I suspect they're not going to make that mistake again. And who's going to pay for it? Uh, us, because we're going to see very high interest rates over, the, over this year and the next.
0: So here's what I want to know. All the experts say. Don't panic. Don't panic. I want to know when should we panic?
8: <laughs> now, I think that right now what we're looking at, what we what we keep an eye on, uh, a number of things. Jobs. Uh, right now, jobs are still holding up. That's a positive. Uh, and even when we see the Fed move in terms of um, in terms of they become more aggressive this year, let's see what happened to the jobs market. We have an unemployment rate that is now at its base back past. I believe it's now at, it's a pre-crisis low, which is a big positive side. Um, what happens with consumers? Right now, consumers are holding up and, and paying and spending those high prices at the, at the mall. When does that slow? When consumers say enough is enough, I gotta hold my money, I gotta conserve my cash. Then you can see businesses pull back, jobs start to weaken, and that's when you see the things tumbling. But at this point in time, at least for now, that's not what's in the equation.
1: Beth Ann Bovino, Chief U.S. Economist, Standard and- &...
0: Well, it seems you may be able to cash in on your old VHS tapes. An auction is being held next month with more than 300 movie music titles from back in the day. Joining us now is Joe Madalena, Executive Vice President of Heritage Auctions. Joe, thanks for being with us. First, for those listening who have no idea what a VHS tape is, Mike and I were trying to figure out how would you describe it to them? How would you describe it? What is it? Well, I think if you
9: don't know what it is, you're not, a, you're not my target audience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to the auction.
9: <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go a different route with this. For everyone who remembers what VHS is, for all of us people who made our weekend plans, going to Blockbuster, waiting in line, having friends over, cooking, this major social event. Hey, I'm your guy.
1: The Friday night blockbuster was something special. Yeah. It was yeah. the greatest time. Um, so tell us what you have. I imagine this isn't just somebody's old tape they found in the attic and, and they want to go and sell it. This is like early stuff or is it still sealed like I'm buying an old video game that's still in the plastic? What do you, what do you have? Yes.
9: Yeah, so have you followed the video game market and seen what's happened with that? Huge. Yes, yeah, like a Mario, we sold a 9.8 for $1.6 million. So the video game market has taken off, and VHS, like, seemed to be right on its heels. A year and a half ago, just to give you an example, a first print of Star Wars from 82, uh, you know, uh, uh, unsealed. a high-grade copy was probably, I don't know, 10000 It's a quarter of a million now. And people are like, what? And I'm like, okay, but you've got to think about this. When VHS first came out, they were really expensive. A tape was a couple hundred bucks. So this is the early 80s. People weren't shelling out that kind of money. That's why Blockbuster became so popular because videos were so expensive. Okay? Even, you know, a few years later, they were still a hundred bucks a piece. It wasn't for a while before the price point came down. So these early printings are incredibly rare because they mostly went to the Video stores—they were opened and rented over and over and over again. So you can get a second print, a third print. So basically, you have a grading company out there who are grading these things. They are sealed. We're not selling un- any unsealed product. But it's everything from the '80s. I mean, which is so incredibly popular right now. You know, all the Raiders of the Lost Ark. The, you know, the, you know, you have uh, Goonies, uh, Ghostbusters. You know, like that whole genre, Aliens, all the horror movies. It's, it's so much. Yeah, but here,
0: but but I guess here's what I don't get, uh, Joe. Uh, you know, videotape. Uh, like I, a few years ago, had a lot of stuff uh, transferred from videotape to digital because videotape does deteriorate over time if it's not kept in really good conditions. And I know the TV networks for years they would spend huge amounts of money to keep videotape in special environments to try to maintain it. And even then, a lot of them started to, to you know, the, the color shifts. It, it does all kinds of weird stuff. So what is the the, the lore of videotape?
9: Well, it's a cultural artifact. If you're spending a million five on a Mario game, you're not opening it. Okay, it's the same exact thing. These so guys you're not watching
0: buying... it, in other words. You just want to have it.
9: No, well, it's like you're not playing the video game. You're spending yeah. 75000 000... For the, the fact is that you're buying something that's unsealed. It's like having an unopened box of baseball cards in the 1950s. Well, the gum can bleed through the cards and make the cards crappy. You know, th- Anything could happen in anything, but you're not buying that. You're buying something that is truly unique. Many don't exist, and, and that's what this is. This is like literally you know, some of these videotapes, as we're finding out, there are so few of them in existence of these first prints but, you know, it's just, it's just like all, anything now that they're grading, it's just kind of like all kind of falling in pattern.
1: Has there been a VHS auction like this before, or is this almost a, like a perfect test case to see how, I mean, obviously you want to make a whole bunch of money, but to see how high they actually go?
9: Uh, there's no question this is a perfect test case. I mean, this has never happened before. Um, there, there have been videos that have sold at auction. Uh, we've, we've sold some in our sports division. Other companies have sold a few here and there. But no one's ever done this. You know, of a, a, a major auction house, a dedicated sale. No, I'm the first. I'm the first crazy
1: person. The <laughs> first guy to try it. Well, what
0: what, <laughs> what, what what gave you the idea to do it?
9: I was at a popular culture convention in Dallas about a year and a half ago, and a guy walked up to me and said, "Hey, I'm grading VHSs. Can you come over to my booth?" And I'm like, "Sure." So I went over to his booth. He gave me his elevator pitch, and I'm like, "It's a really good idea." <laughs> so. I went back and talked to my partners at the company, and I'm like, am I crazy? And they're like, no, this makes perfectly good sense. I mean, why wouldn't this be the next extension? Because, again, if you know what a VHS is, everybody in the world used them. There was a time in our life where every country was watching the same Like video games. It's not an American phenomenon. These are played these VHSs were played all over the world. So, how do, people, so
0: the, how do people get in on the auction?
9: So they can go to our website, uh, ha.com, and they can download the catalog. It's June 9th, you know, and there's about 320 tapes. And we have everything from a few hundred bucks to tens of thousands of dollars. But everything starts at a dollar. Nothing is reserved, so the market will find its way. You know, we we just we're just this is like one of those things, it's a test case. It's just like literally every single tape is going to open up at a dollar.
1: You got an old copy of Blade Runner in there?
9: Yes, we do. Oh. First, a first print, a first print of Blade Runner. God, is probably fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars.
0: Wow! Care to put in a bid, Mr. Simpson? I mean, it would be cool to have. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. That's hey,
9: there you go, because be cool. You're my yeah. Come
1: on. (laughs) (laughs) Let me go dig up the old uh, whatever else I have that I can sell to buy the VHS, the old Pokemon cards or whatever else got hot like over the last six months. Check your 401k (laughs) first. (laughs) Exactly. All right. uh, Joe Maddalena there. And uh, he's executive vice president of Heritage Auctions. Joe, thanks.